for those who don't know, most of you probably do, I have a tattoo. And so when I was in college, I was a part of a fraternity. And when we made it through what was called Hell Week, which back then was true hazing, maybe not hazing as in the 70s and 80s, but it was still hazing. And enough that we got in trouble for it in our fraternity by our university. And so you made it through Hell Week, then you would go through membership. And once you became an official member, if, you know, most of the guys, what we would do is in order to show who we belonged to, we would go down and get tattoos of our fraternity. So I was a part of Delta Chi, had a triangle and an X tattooed. A lot of the other guys would go down there. They'd get the triangle and the X put on their body. Of course, some of those guys, they wanted to show who they belonged to, but they'd put it really far down on their ankle or on their shoulder, hoping that when they got home, their parents wouldn't see it because they were real men in college. So they'd get tattooed to show who they would belong to. You know, there's so many things that we do to show who we belong to. You can see the way we, we view people, the way we judge people is based upon those signs. For example, I was at the Oregon Beach last fall, last summer, and we went down there. We saw a little fireplace, and we thought, oh, this is a good place. Bring all the grandkids, and we'll cook some hot dogs, make some s'mores. We start sitting around it, and then behind us is this, like, mountain of sand, and so this, this mountain of sand was about four feet tall at least. It was a huge circle, about 30-foot circumference, with a ditch that was about three foot deep, and it had little tunnels in it. It was so cool. So we thought, well, this is a good place to, like, play, to do that kind of stuff. So we just start tearing into our food, and this guy comes down with his family. He says, excuse me? Yeah, Hello. I built this for my kids. All right. Thank you. Like, we're just eating dinner. But we plan on playing here. I said, okay, we'll just keep playing. You guys can play there. We don't mind. If you want to join us for dinner, you're welcome. We got extra hot dogs and marshmallows. And, and so there was a little bit of tension at first. But then I noticed something. This may seem odd to some of you but he was wearing an Under Armour shirt. And I thought, this guy ain't so bad. He's one of my kind. I can connect to him. Why? Because I've always viewed the Under Armour brand in a certain way and certain people who know wear Under Armour shirts. And so there was a connection, and because I was chill and just able to see that, relax, and like, hey, you're, you're part of our people. Let's, let's sit and talk. And so after that point from then on, we got along the rest of the weekend. He actually apologized. He said, yeah, all of your grandkids, they can play here, all this kind of stuff. All over the sign that I judged him by. When I was in Kauai one time, this park ranger told my family and I, just go, follow this little trail down there. Only the locals know about this. It's a mango tree. It's great big. And this river that goes down, it's kind of like a jungle flows down there. You can swim down there. There's a swing off the tree. And, and so I said, are the locals okay with that? Because, you know, locals in Hawaii don't always care much for us tourists. So we get down there, and all I hear as we're walking up is, like, 
music just blaring. And I could see, like, the old school ghetto blaster. And right away I'm thinking, you know, I'm like 50 now. I just don't want to deal with this stuff if they don't like us. So we get down there, and there's these two guys that look like they're probably late teens, early 20s. They're swinging on the ropes. And the one guy turns around, and he has Philippians 4.13 tattooed on his chest. Right away, I think, we're okay. Right? There's certain signs that represent who we belong to. You know, think about, or, or, you know, what we think of the thing. Historically, most of you don't know the little fish symbol in Christianity. Came from a time period when the Christians were being persecuted, and so they would draw the fish in the sand or on the ground to secretly let people know that they were Christians. Another historical sign that people would use to show they were Christians is a cross, right? They would wear a cross. Why do I say that's historical? Because nowadays it's just a fashion symbol for some people. But we always look at people and there's certain signs that we will judge them by that we know they belong to somebody because of that sign. You see it with companies, you see it with brand logos, you see it with colleges, you see it with fraternities. Throughout all of the world, there are signs that we look at that point to who we belong to as a people. And that's what we actually see the argument over in the book of Galatians. So as we've been going through this, what we've seen is Paul has planted a group of churches in an area called Galatia. And those churches were first planted based upon the knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he died for our sins and that he has set people free who will accept him into their lives. But along came a group of people called Judaizers. Judaizers were people who also believed as Jews and Jesus Christ is their savior, but they believed Jesus plus. So they believed that you had to believe in Jesus plus you had to follow all of these good works. In that day, it was following after the laws of the Old Testament. So the number one thing that most Jews would go by that they were fighting over was circumcision. Never a fight in today's world for a grown man. And why would they fight over the idea that the Gentiles who are coming to faith in the Lord in order to really be saved and become a part of the, quote, family is circumcision. It's because circumcision was the covenant that God made with Abraham in the very beginning that God's people would be known by. It was their sign. And if you didn't have the sign, then you did not belong as one of God's children. And so for centuries, this is ingrained into a culture of people, into a society. And to think that somebody can come and be a part of God's children, God's family, and not have the sign was mind-boggling to Jews. But Paul was arguing against the fact that you actually needed the sign. And so he was taking the argument of the original Jews of using Abraham as the reason why they needed to do this, to become circumcised as as people who were non-Jews in order to become a part of the faith. And he says, okay, you want to argue with Abraham? Then let me explain Abraham to all of you who really know this. And he begins to argue with Father Ab- about Father Abraham. And what he begins to describe to them is that prior to the covenant, he made a promise, and it's that promise that stands to this day, 
that Abraham would have a child and that that child would produce children that would be as numerous as the stars and that they would be a blessed people. And so in that, there was a sign of who you would belong to. Now listen, being a part of a patriarchal family back in those days of that society, every Jew looked to Abraham as the father of the faith. Truly, most ethnic groups that knew anything about the Jews probably knew the story of Abraham because of the influence of the Jews. The Judaizers are literally arguing using Abraham, and Paul begins to argue using the same story of Abraham, but that the promise preceded the sign of the covenant and obviously the law that implemented that. So he's like, you know, I'm willing to bring Father Abraham into the debate, but what I want you to understand as we approach chapter 4, and we're going to start at the end of chapter 4, is that while the Jews are busy arguing over who's your daddy, Paul flips the script when it comes to who's really saved. And he says the real question isn't who's your daddy, but who's your mama. And so if you have Galatians chapter 4, go down to verse 21 this morning. And he's going to go into this argument. I'll come back to the first few verses in a few minutes. And he says in his argument, tell me, you who desire to be under the law. Like he's talking to people who claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. Like why in the world would you want to still follow the law? Do you not hear the law? For it is written that Abraham had two sons. Everybody say two. One by a bond woman, which meant that she was a slave. The other by a free woman. But he who was of the bondwoman was born according to the flesh. Everybody say flesh. The free woman through the promise. Say promise. Which things are symbolic? For these are the two covenants. One from Mount Sinai, which gives birth to bondage, which is the mother Hagar. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia and corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now and is in bondage with her children. What he's doing is he's describing the influence of Jews who follow after the law and where they're at in the current Jerusalem of their day. But Jerusalem above, meaning Jerusalem in heaven, is free, which is the mother of us all. For it is written, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear, speaking of Sarah, because she was a barren woman, Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate who has many more children than she who has a husband. So she's going to have more children being barren than anybody who has a husband. Now we, brethren, as Isaac was, are children of promise. There's that word promise again. But as he who was born according to the flesh then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit. So He's talking about how Ishmael persecuted Isaac in the Old Testament, made fun of him and knocked him, and that those who, who are real religious will often knock those who are not religious in the faith. And so he goes on from there, even so it is now. That's the way it is now. Nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman should not be heir with the son of the free woman. They won't be together. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free woman. So when the Jews are asking, who's your daddy? Paul's saying, no, you need to pay attention here. Who's your mama? Now, most here this morning, you probably know the story 
of Abraham. But let's do a quick reminder. For those who don't know, Abraham was with his wife, Sarah. Sarah had a concubine called Hagar. Sarah was barren and couldn't have children. And so God had come and given a promise to Abraham and Sarah that they would have a child. And, of course, that they would be the parents of a nation of people. And at that time of the promise, they were already, you know, several years old, like 60s, 70s, right? So just to even think that you could have a child at that time frame would be miraculous, right? And so years go by, and they still haven't had a child, and they're like, if this is ever going to happen, then we need to do something. Isn't that what we quite often do? Like, if God isn't going to make this happen, then let's take it into our own hands, and we can make it happen. And so they think about how this could happen, and Sarah says, well, I got my concubine. Why don't you just go into her and then produce a child, and that child will fulfill the promise. And so that's what takes place, and they have a child, and that child's name is Ishmael. That creates a lot of controversy and a mess within the family because they didn't follow God's promise. They didn't trust in his promise. Fourteen years later, the promise comes to pass, and God produces a child named Isaac through his mother Sarah, which was even more miraculous because by then we're talking, you know, centuries old. Not quite centuries, but you know what I'm saying. Very, very old. Ninety, a hundred. And so then comes this tremendous mess between the two families. When it comes to the promise, it's clear why Paul would use this example. Because the Jews revered Abraham as a spiritual father. As far as they were concerned, you know, if you were a physical descendant of Abraham, that's all that was required, then you were going to be in good standing with the Lord. Your salvation was connected to your spiritual lineage. And Paul is actually arguing that your salvation is a matter of faith, not your family tree. Now, I'm sure there's nobody here that thinks like this. When I was in college, I had a friend of mine uh, from southern Idaho in my fraternity. He was Basque. And he was a proud Basque person. That's all he talked about is his family being Basque. And in his mind, he was saved, going to heaven, because... All Basques are Catholics, and Catholics, the one true faith, and therefore he was going to heaven no matter what because he came from that lineage. Now, being Italian in my family, we somewhat have the same mentality, it seems like. When I was young and I was learning about faith, you know, my dad would say that we're Italian. Now, he marries my stepmom, and she was Lutheran. That was a big divide. And so... Then we became Lutherans. Nevertheless, a lot of times what we would do is we would coincide the fact that because we were of a certain spiritual lineage, that we were automatically good enough in order to get to heaven when Jesus returned. Now, I know nobody here thinks like that, but it's not a matter of your family tree and who you're connected to. What more people might, you know, have false safety in is in the faith of their parents, right? You were raised in the church, your parents went to church, your grandma prayed for you, all sorts of those things, I'm good. Or maybe in your spouse, your spouse is saved, your spouse goes to church, they pray for you, you think that, well, I'm good. Maybe it's in a friend, and a friend is with you, and you're connected to them, but it's connected through their faith. But it's not about who you're connected to, because salvation only comes through one connection, And one connection only, and that is through Jesus Christ. I'll be honest with you, when I was, uh, when my daughters were younger and growing up in the house, I was a little bit concerned. You guys all know the stories 
of like if I saw them, you know, standing in church and they weren't singing or something or, you know, looked like they were worshiping God, I would ground them when they'd get home. I'd be like, you know what? You guys don't go to church for that. I was hard. I know that sounds bad, but there was this concern of mine that their faith would rest in their dad's faith or their mom's faith, their parents' faith. And I wanted them to know that my faith isn't going to get you to heaven. It's barely going to get me to heaven. You've got to have a faith of your own and believe in Jesus Christ for yourself. And so there was this big concern in my heart that for some reason they might connect that their dad's a pastor and that their mom's the most faithful person they know to the fact that they're good. But really, they're not good. I don't care how good of kids they were, they could never be good enough, right? Because our righteousness is as filthy works before the Lord. It means absolutely nothing to him. What matters is that they would have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And the problem in Galatia was this. The Judaizers taught, again, that you had to be a Jew, and, and then you also had to act like a Jew in order to be saved. That meant having the sign of who you belonged to, the sign of circumcision. But that's not the question. Here's the facts of the story, and this is why. Number one in the story, there was two mothers. Do we have the two moms up here? There was two moms. One was Sarah. The other one was Hagar. Sarah, in Paul's analogy, represents grace. Hagar represents the law. Sarah represents faith. Hagar represents good works, that you can do enough good things. Sarah stands for learning to trust in God alone. Hagar stands for trying to please God through your own efforts. Sarah, the free woman, produces a free child, meaning that grace and faith and trusting God is what produces true freedom in life. Hagar, the slave woman, produces a slave child, somebody who will never be free because the law and works and do, trying to do things on your own that are good all of the time does nothing but produce bondage in your life, that you're always going to be enslaved to the ways of the world. There were two sons in the story. The two sons, of course, were Isaac and Ishmael. One son was born the ordinary way. The other son was born by God's intervention. One son was born by spiritual compromise. Everybody hear that? Every now and then you have a tendency to want to compromise your faith. One son was born out of, comp out of a compromise of faith. The other one was born according to God's promise. Ishmael was born according to works, trying to solve the problem by their own human effort. Isaac was born because Abraham and Sarah finally decided, after it failed the first time, to believe in God's promise. You remember what believing really means? I think Ed did a great job last week of describing that. Lots of people believe in God, but the belief of salvation is that you believe in the way that God will bring his promise to pass in your life. I am trusting that God will do what he says he will do. And they finally came to that place of true belief. The whole family is a mess. And sometimes life is a mess because self-effort and faith in God do not live in harmony. Finally, notice this. Kind of, you know, the, the pinnacle of the argument here is that there's only one father in this story. Notice that Abraham stands at the head of both lines. The lineages are two distinct lineages. 
Abraham stands at the head of Ishmael and his lineage. He stands at the head of Isaac and his lineage, meaning that he was the father of human effort, and he was also the father of trusting in God. And so really, when it comes down to the question of who's your father and the Jews fighting over, is your father Abraham, it's not really about who your father was, Paul is saying. He's saying it's about who's your mama. Because if you have the wrong mother, then you are going to be legalistic. You are going to be somebody who thinks that you can work things out on your own, that you can do things your own way by your own efforts. You're going to think that you can produce something that is good or good enough. And here's what Paul has to say about that in the scriptures when he gets to, to verse 30. Remember, he says, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Meaning, what's God's word? God's word says this about those who do things by their own efforts. Cast out the bondwoman and her son. For the son of the bondwoman shall not be heir with the son of the free woman. What's he saying? He's saying this. You may think that you're good because you share the same father, or you think you do, because you share the same sign as somebody else, because, you know, you share certain things with them. But God says those who put their faith in the product of their own efforts will be cast away. The road to hell is paved with good intentions is a very true statement. And when it comes to the facts of the story involving a mother, a son, and a father, number one, I know it sounds harsh, but it's truth. The only reason that it sounds harsh is because a person hasn't experienced the good by belonging to the lineage of Sarah. You haven't yet experienced the true grace, the true freedom, what it truly means to trust in God. And therefore, because you haven't experienced the good of that, you think that sounds very harsh. Once you experience the good of that, you would never go any other way. Number two, as a child of God, if you don't want to be cast away, what Paul is saying is it's important to understand that lineage isn't what matters. It's not about our earthly lineage. It's about our spiritual lineage. And thirdly, it's important when it comes to the Father, he describes about knowing the Father and, more importantly, being known by the Father. You know, Jesus tells the story that in the end there will be people that come to him when he returns and he'll separate them out. And there will be people that get separated out as being cast away and they'll say, but Lord, Lord, right, I did all of these things in your name, meaning they knew him. But was it, what does he say to them? He says, but I didn't know you because they lived lawlessly. It's important that we know God well enough and believe in him enough that he knows us. Now go back to the beginning of Galatians chapter 4. And the Apostle Paul is describing this spiritual lineage, what really matters. And he says in verse 1, Now I say that the heir, everybody say the heir, as long as he is a child, he doesn't differ at all from a slave, though he is the master of all but is under guardians and stewards until the time appointed by the Father. Now, what is Paul doing here? He's using an illustration to describe a son who's raised in a home where one day he will become the master of that home because he'll receive the inheritance 
from his father. He'll be in charge. But while young, his life isn't much different than a slave's life, a servant, somebody who serves their, the father, his father. In fact, a slave may actually have more freedom than the son of the father in that time frame. Why? Because a slave is given certain, certain duties, but the son of the father that's going to be raised up to someday be the master over everything, when he's young, his time is managed. It's stewarded. He has to be taught certain things, and so he's got to be taught the business like the, the rest of the slaves, what to do and why to do it, the why behind that. He has to be taught about the family business. He has to be taught about life in general, and so he's constantly got guardians around him to make sure that he goes in the right direction. In his life, there is very little freedom, even though he is destined to inherit everything from his father. But there will come a day in his life when his father chooses, it is the appointed time, and he considers him of age in order to pass everything on to his son. Now, most of you know in Jewish custom that that was at a certain age that a boy was considered a man. Paul wasn't following Jewish custom. He was following the Roman custom. And in the, the Roman world, what was typically done is that when the father thought the son was ready, not by a certain age, but when he judged that he was mature enough, had learned enough, was, was good enough, then he would officially create a celebration for his son, a coming-of-age celebration, where he would then adopt him as his son and the heir to everything that he has. Now comes the comparison to our spiritual condition. When Paul says in verse 3, even so we, when we were children, were in bondage under the elements of the world. What are the elements of the world? They're the order of the world. We know who the world, the Bible says the world belongs to. It's, it's the ways of the world. It's the ways of Satan. It's his structure. And so he says at one time we're all in bondage, every single one of us, to the way things are run in the world. He says, but in verse 4, when the fullness of time had come, when the father was ready, at the appropriate time, he decided it was our time to be released from the bondage of the world, from the bondage of the law, from the bondage of human effort and works and trying to be good and officially be given freedom. When that time had come, God sent forth his son. Listen, Jesus wasn't just haphazardly born one day. He was sent forth from God, the Bible says. He was sent forth at a specific time. That means that Jesus preexisted, that he was before, that he is and always will be, that Jesus is God himself. And it says not only is he God himself and was sent forth at a certain time, but that he was born of a woman. Why being born of a woman? Because he wanted us to know that it, he was born just like you and me. God became flesh so that we could relate to him, that he had the ability to overcome the ways of the world. It says that he was born under the law, meaning he was born under the same bondage. He was born under the same law. He was born under the same world order as everybody else. In verse 5, to redeem those who were under the law that we might receive adoption as sons to become the children of God, sons and daughters. What does that mean? This is the amazing part that Paul's describing, the spiritual uh, lineage here, is that Jesus first came to pay the price for our redemption, to rescue us from evil. 
in order to then set us free. And thirdly, it's saying that he then brings us into the family, right? I don't know. To me, it blows me away to think that when somebody's in trouble, it'd be one thing to rescue them from that trouble. It'd be a whole other thing to say, I'm not just going to rescue you, you from this trouble, but from all trouble, you're now set free from whatever it is that, that put you into bondage and then send them on their way. That would be a good thing, right? It'd be a good thing to deliver them from whatever they were in trouble for. It would be a good thing to then set them free from all of the trouble that they were in. Would not that be a great thing? But yet God is so good that he says, not only am I going to deliver you from evil and set you free in life, but now I'm going to invite you into my family. And you will become a part of my chosen family. You will become one of my own. That's a whole other level of greatness, isn't it? So what does it mean when he says that you will become adopted? Number one, it means that you are chosen. That means this, that you didn't earn it. He chose you. Number two, that you become a part of a new family. You have a new father. You have a new mother. You have new brothers and sisters in the spiritual family, right? Number three, that you have a new name, which means also when you get a new name that you have a new identity. How many know that sometimes your name will label you? And that becomes a sign for people to look at you and judge you by. Whether that's good or bad, that name becomes a part of who you are. It becomes a part of your identity. But under Christ, you're giving a new name that is a sign of who you now belong to, which also means that you have a new future. Because God says that he's created us with a plan and a purpose, and that plan and that purpose is good. That you have, now have a new destiny, that you have full rights and privileges. So whatever rights and privileges you have, uh, this family has, you now have those same rights and those same privileges. That you have a full share of the inheritance that's going to be passed on, that he promises to his children. Even though you're adopted, that doesn't mean you're a redheaded stepchild, okay? Sorry for the redheads. It means that you're now fully embraced as one that is blood, that you will receive the full inheritance. And most importantly, it also means this, that you have access to God anytime, anywhere. Access to your father. And he says in verse 6, and because you are sons, because you are, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts crying out, Abba, Father. What's Paul saying? He's like, here's your sign. What's the sign that reflects who you belong to? It's not Under Armour t-shirts. It's not tattoos. It's not circumcision. Your sign is that the spirit of his son is in your heart. It's a heart sign, God in you that is confirmed by what he calls a crying out, Abba, Father. So there's a confirmation that the spirit of the Son is in your heart. What's the confirmation? What's the visible aspect of the sign that the spirit is actually in somebody? That it's the crying out of Abba, Father. So what in the world does that mean? It's interesting here because very seldom... Does the Apostle Paul, when he's writing, he writes in Greek, bring the original language that they would have spoke into this? And so 
what he actually does is he brings the word for father, which is Abba from the Aramaic, into his Greek writing, which was pater that we translate into father. So what he was really saying in Hebrew and in the language of the time was father, father. Now, I've heard it taught. I've probably even said it myself, uh, but having researched and having people help me even research this week, that a lot of pastors, preachers would say that what Paul was saying is that Abba refers to the term daddy or papa, and it reveals an intimacy, childlike intimacy of, uh, of, a, of a little child with his father and the way he relates to him. I couldn't find that actually anywhere. What I did find is that the original word was spoken by babies, and if you look up the word for father in almost every single language on earth, except for a couple, uh, that it has some aspect of papa within that word. Every single language, because that is what is voiced from a baby, and that's what came to mean father in most languages. So there is some truth to what is, has been taught over the years. But what doesn't matter is, you know, whether it's said from a child or someone who's older. What's being denoted in the scriptures here is that Paul is trying to express is that the sign of somebody who has the spirit of God inside of them is that they know what it means to have an intimate relationship with Father God. That there's something personal about who God is in their lives, and it's reflective in the way they live their lives. That God isn't some just pie in the sky, some being that's out there, somebody that I have been taught about when I was young or that I have some head knowledge about because I've read a couple of books or I've been told about this, and so you have something there that's in your head. No, he talks about it being in your heart, that there is something more to relating to God. A lot of people would relate to this as having had an experience with God that changes you, that you know without a shadow of a doubt that God is real. He's no longer just, just a being, that he's personal to you. Again, when I was probably, I think the year I graduated, I was going to the church, and you guys know this story. I was going to church in Kellogg, at a church in Kellogg, because... Uh, I was dating my girlfriend, and, you know, I wanted to have a relationship with her. And so I went to church. And most of the time I just went to church because I was fulfilling what I thought was a good duty in order for her to be on my good side because I didn't deserve her. And so I was just, like, looking around thinking most people, like, people put their hands in the air. They're weird. That, you know, this whole singing thing was boring. Uh, it definitely wasn't 80s rock. And so I didn't really care for the, the hymnal singing. I, I looked at all of this as crazy, but I endured because I wanted her. And so one time that summer, uh, I, was, I was living life differently, obviously, and I had some things happen. And then I came to church that Sunday, and I was sitting with her, and the pastor preached to me a sermon. And I say to me because what he preached that Sunday I literally thought that my girlfriend, who's now my wife, had to have told him everything that happened that week. I was like, did you, you say something to this guy? Like, what's the deal here? When it was all said and done, like, he had like an altar call. People would come to the altar to accept Jesus. Most Sundays, nobody even dared step foot towards that altar to go up there. Like, that was just a formality of the service. If you want to give your heart to Christ today, come forward. The pastor will pray. The 
whatever we call them, will pray with you, right? And so that Sunday, all of a sudden, at the end of service, I start crying. Like something hits me. I'm like, what is this? Why am I crying? What is going on inside of me? There's something different. And so when he says those words, it was like there was a magnet on my chest and one on his. And it was drawing me to literally go up and get prayer with him and ask Jesus Christ into my heart. Now that changed my life. It didn't change my lifestyle because when I went to college, I still lived like hell. But the good thing is I knew then who God was enough to know I was going to hell probably. And that's why you've heard me tell stories about my Muslim buddies, and I would argue with them they're going to hell just like me, that I would have friends in my fraternity, and we would have these religious debates, and I'd be like, y'all going to hell because there's no reflection of God in your life. And so we would have these arguments, right? And then it wasn't until a few years later that I had a kind of similar time in my life where I had studied coming out of college, a different aspect. I wanted to know, is Jesus, was he a real person? Did he walk on the face of the earth? Is he, is he who he said he was? Or is he what people say, which would make him a lunatic, right? Or crazy, or just a man, and probably not a good man, but he had good teachings, but he said crazy stuff. Whatever you want to throw out there. So I had to do all this research until I finally came to a place where I felt like God did something again this time inside of my heart that secured a foundation enough for me to, be, me to be able to stand on and read through these scriptures that we just read and believe, no, Jesus preexisted. He was sent to earth by his father, that he was born of a woman under the law, and that he came to set us free and redeem us from all that has held us into bondage. And that's what he's talking about, is the ability to be able to express, no, I know God, I love God, and I know that he knows me because I talk to him because I go to him. That's what this whole intimacy with God thing is really about. It's more than just good thinking. And so when it comes down to, to what Paul's trying to express here, we have the Apostle Paul following the ways of Jesus and expressing when you know that God is your father, that's when you know the spirit of God is inside of you. Now, you may not realize how crazy that sounds, but do you know the Jews had a name for God? And that in that name for God, they would never speak the name of God because it was too personal. And they didn't want to, to use a name that was too personal in relating to God. So for centuries, no Jew would speak the name of God because it would be too personal. Then you have Jesus come up on the scene, and he starts relating to God as his father. And some of the religious Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews at the time, were mad that Jesus would dare call God his father when we won't even use his name. And now you have the Apostle Paul encouraging other Christians. No, when the Spirit of God comes inside of you, you can relate to God as your one true Father, that you have a part of all that he has to offer, including his eternal inheritance. So we get to verse 7, and I'm going to close here. Therefore, he says, you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. Everybody say heir. Of the worship team, come up. Really think about what we just read. If you're a son of God, what have you inherited? You have a father that loves you so much that at the perfect time, 
He didn't just cause his son to be born on earth. He just didn't give his son on our behalf. No, imagine God looks down from heaven and he sees the time is right. Right now. And he says, go. Jesus, go. Go now. And he watches in anticipation as he launches his son into the middle of your messy life. Not only coming to us, but becoming like us. So that he could spread out his arms on the cross, stretching from heaven to earth to bridge the gap between God and all of humanity in order to redeem us. But that wasn't even the end of his, his mission. All of this is purpose, that those who would believe in him might receive adoption, not because you've earned something by your goodness, but because you were chosen by him. And then, in the same way that God would send his son into our broken world to save us, that he would send the spirit of his son into our sinful hearts to make us sons and daughters of God. One of my favorite pastors, John Piper, describes it this way. He says, by the Spirit, God himself is in us, binding us to himself, making us his own, and giving us access to him now through prayer, and then forever in eternity face to face. We have intimacy with the only one who can truly know us and satisfy us. By our faith, he lives in us, listens to us, loves us. He is with us by his Spirit. The Spirit gives us the confidence and freedom to cry out to God. He assures us that God really does love us. The cry he inspires is a cry to Dad, Abba Father. The Spirit inside of us pleads as a child, not as a slave. As a child, our intimacy with the Father means his love is deep, his love is persistent, his love is not decisively based on our performance. We are thoroughly known and profoundly loved because we are his. And if that wasn't enough, he brings us into the inheritance. He calls us heirs. In another letter, he calls us co-heirs with Christ. Christ, the one who did everything to inherit, to to earn the inheritance, and now we can become co-heirs with Jesus. Listen, you've been set free, he says, from the ways of the world, from Satan's power. So why mess around with the devil anymore? We have a new family. We should stop living like we belong to the old one. You have brothers and sisters in the faith. Lean on them. You have the Holy Spirit, which means you don't need to live in the flesh. The Bible says you've been given heavenly riches, so don't live trapped in spiritual poverty. You have spiritual gifts. Put them to work for Christ. You have access to God 24-7 now. He's encouraging you to use it, to display the sign that reflects who you belong to. Father, we thank you for your word this morning. And I pray beyond my words that whatever it is that we needed to hear as individuals, that your word would speak to our hearts. Lord, that you would bring the transformation that you desire to make us more like Jesus. That when we walk out of here today, we can say, 
you are my father and you know me and I'm proud to display the sign that you have given me to show that I belong to you. In Jesus' name we pray.